We got Jackson. Come on, buddy. Come on up here. And then this is Kara and Damon. How you doing? High five? Oh, yeah. Let's do this. And this is your sister, too, huh? This is Tori. Tori. Awesome. All right. So, Jackson, right up here. And let's get you with your mom and your dad. So, uh, here at this church, we uh, love the little children. My wife, Leah, is our children's ministry director. And uh, God just does great work. He says, let the little children come unto me. He even says, if uh, you want to enter the kingdom of God, be like a little child. Uh, and we know that to enter the kingdom of God is to enter it uh, by grace through faith. And when a person comes to a decision of faith, uh, we believe the person makes a public declaration of that faith through baptism. Um, but we also just want to take a, um, a recognition at an early age in children's lives and say, we want to dedicate these children unto the Lord um, just so that as a church family, we can be praying together. And that's what we want to come alongside you guys, to pray for you as parents, to pray for you as children, and uh, to just ask for God's blessing to be upon them. So that's what we're doing. You ready, Jackson? We're going to pray for you, little buddy. You look excited. See, we all got to be a little bit more like that in our faith, you know? So uh, love it. Well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for little Jackson here, Lord. We just lift him up to you, Lord. We thank you for Karen, for Damon, and for Tori, Lord, this beautiful family here. Uh, we know, Lord, that you have your hand of blessing and protection and provision upon this family. And God, we just ask, Lord, that they would wholly serve you, Lord, that even uh, he would have just a uh, Jackson will have a different spirit, Lord, just to wholly follow the Lord. And so we thank you, God, and praise you for this family. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I love it. And look, so we got this scripture up here. This is the verse that you guys chose. And uh, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Isn't that a great scripture from 3 John? So, yeah, bless you guys. All right, Jackson. <laughs> yeah, uh, I can, cool. all right, love it, all right, well, good morning, and let's, uh, let's dive into God's word together, so we are in the book of Hebrews, been going through verse by verse, so if you've got your Bible, please open it up to Hebrews chapter 8, and uh, we are just excited for um, all that God is going to speak to us today through his word, so as you know, um, the letter of Hebrews was written to um, early Jewish Christians, and it was written in order to convince them in many ways of the superiority of Jesus Christ, and that's what we've been learning. We've, we've found out that Jesus is the great high priest of a better covenant, and that awesome truth about our Lord is now going to come to like a head, like a summation here in chapter 8. And so this chapter kind of really needs no introduction because the first verse gives one to us when it says this. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. Don't you just like that? The point in what we're saying is this. So we're going to find out what that point is in God's word. So Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to cover the whole chapter today. So let's just get right to it. Starting in verse 1, read with me. It says this. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. 
We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and then quoting from Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord." For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Good stuff. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. God, we ask, Lord, that your word would penetrate into our hearts, Lord. For those who already believe in you, we thank you, God, that your word is hidden in our hearts, even written on the fleshly tablet of it. Spirit, would you illuminate these truths so we could be reminded of the greatness of Jesus. But God, I pray for those who may not know you yet, Lord, as God and Savior. I pray that today they would hear of your goodness, they'd hear of your grace, and they'd be drawn in to receive from you eternal salvation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I appreciate how verse 1 begins when it says, Now the point in what we're saying is this. Because the writer of Hebrews doesn't want anyone wondering what it is that he's trying to say. He wants to be very clear with his points, and I believe that he has been. He's been making these careful points, just building one upon another, so that we could draw certain conclusions about who Jesus is and about what Jesus has done for us. For instance, we've seen most recently that Jesus is our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that is, Jesus is both our king 
and our priest of the Most High God. And Jesus is not only the priest, but he is also the sacrifice. Because you see, what Jesus did is when he died upon the cross, he went into the inner sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary, and offered up his own life as he atoned for our sins once and for all when he died. Amen? Amen. And so look again at verse 1 to see then what the main point of all of this is. Anyway, it says this in verse 1. Now the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, all the way back in chapter 4 of Hebrews, do you remember that? Probably not, because uh, we've just been going through kind of slow. But all the way back in chapter 4, the writer first introduced this fact that Jesus is our high priest. And as probably a lot of Gentiles that might not have connected right away, but for the Jewish people, that would have connected immediately. But this is what he is. Jesus is our high priest. However, we've seen that Jesus is not a priest according to the law of Moses because he did not descend from the tribe of Levi. So if Jesus is not a priest of Levi after the order of Aaron, and if you're kind of lost, you've got to go back a few messages and listen but, but if Jesus is not a priest of Levi after the order of Aaron, then this means that he would need to have, have to be a priest of another priesthood. And that is why we spent two weeks diving deep into the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is how Jesus has been qualified to be both our king and our priest. And look, there's been a reason for all of this sort of meaty, right, historical and theological information. These aren't just interesting theological and historical points just so that we can say, wow, that, those are fun facts. No, there's a point in what we're saying in all of this. And the point is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven. So can't you picture it right now? And look, this requires that you would just in a sense in your own head and in your own heart, picture with faith Jesus there right now in heaven. He's there at the throne of the majesty of heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing? Well, we heard that he is interceding for us. Do you picture it? Jesus there, some kind of throne. We don't know exactly what it looks like, but Jesus, the Son of God, seated next to his heavenly, majestic Father. You can't really quite picture what that would necessarily be like, but with faith we say, yes, that is happening right now. Jesus is enthroned in heaven next to his Father, and he's praying for me right now. Do you believe this? Good. <laughs> I do. See, I, I believe it because the Bible is telling me that it's happening right now. Look at the grammar tense of these particular words in verse 1. It says, we have such a high priest. It doesn't say we had such a high priest. It doesn't say we will have such a high priest. It says we have 
such a high priest. Jesus is currently serving us in this way. See, we have Jesus serving us from heaven right now as our eternal high priest who is himself the final offering for sin. Since he lives by the power of an indestructible life. So the son of God at one point in history descended in what is called the incarnation. God the son who has always existed took on human flesh and he lived a perfect life And after about 33-ish years, he was sentenced to crucifixion by the Romans. And there on a cross, God saw that death of his son as a sacrifice. The Bible says that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the world. And so as Jesus hung upon a cross, it was God the Father looking upon his son as the sacrificial offering that would cover sins once and for all. And Jesus died on the cross. He spoke many words, but one of the words he said was to talisti, which means it is finished. It has been paid in full. He gave up his last breath. Some of his disciples, secret disciples at one point, pulled him off of that cross, laid him in a tomb, but three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And he appeared alive to his disciples and even to over 500 witnesses, some who, when this book of Hebrews was written, may have still been alive. And then after being raised from the dead, Jesus ascended to heaven and he sat down. And he is there right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, serving us as our high priest. Now, let me point out one other word tense in verse one, and it has to do with the posture of Jesus right now as he's in heaven. Do you see there that Jesus is one who is seated at the right hand of the throne? The verb seated has the idea that Jesus sat down and he remains sitting. Now, why is this important? It's important because Jesus is in a posture of rest. Because his work is finished. And this also speaks not only of the posture, but of the position. It says he's at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the highest position of honor that can be given, is at the right hand of the throne. And it has been appointed to the Son. So Jesus is there in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, in that place of honor forever. Okay, well... What's the point of all of this? That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to us. These aren't just fun facts. Sort of, ooh, like what would that look like? The point of all of this is that we have such a high priest. He's alive. He's well. (laughs) He's not in heaven pacing back and forth like, oh, man, what's going on down there? Things are getting really out of control. I mean, I've never seen anything like this before. What are people doing down there? No, Jesus is calmly seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's praying for us because we need a lot of prayer, don't we? But he's there in heaven. And not only that, but we can go to him there. Hebrews has told us that we can go boldly to the throne room of grace, that we can go and obtain 
grace and mercy and help in time of need. So if you need something from God today, you can just go right to the throne of God and make your request known. And here's what I believe the point is. I believe the point is, is that we should not be, it, it shouldn't be the experience of Christians to enter heaven for the first time at their death. It should be our spiritual experience constantly. We are to live in the throne room of God, by faith that is. But our lives are to be lived in light of this truth of what God is seeking to do in us and through us by our Lord Jesus Christ. So heaven should not be this totally strange place when we come into it in a physical sense because we have already been there in a spiritual sense. So the question is, when was the last time you approached Jesus on his throne to receive help? Because you have direct access. You can go to Jesus because he forever serves us from his throne of honor. And that's not all, though, but look at what Jesus is also doing in verse 2. It says, Jesus is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So this word minister is really interesting, right? Because combined with what I've already just said, because the word minister means a worker for the people, That's what a minister is. They're a worker for the people. So Jesus is working in the holy place. He's working in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And so here's the question we need to ask. Is Jesus seated because his work is finished? Or is Jesus working as a minister in the holy places, in the true tent? Is he seated or is he working? Yes. See, Jesus' work is finished, but he's still working. You could say that Jesus is ministering his finished work to us. It's already been accomplished. He's just giving it out. He's giving it out. But let's think for a moment in contrast about how the priests after the order of Aaron served as ministers in the holy places, in the tent or or what is called the tabernacle, or even what would later be known as the temple in Jerusalem. How did they serve? Let's look at verses 3 through 5. It says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So every priest that ministered in the holy places, in what was either the tabernacle or like I said later, the temple, they were appointed by God, to offer gifts and sacrifices, but they had to do it according to the law of God. For instance, today is actually a Jewish holiday. Uh, It's called Rosh Hashanah, and it is that over this weekend, the Jews have been celebrating the beginning of their calendar. And this also marks uh, the point where there is a 10-day period of prayer and repentance 
and fasting because 10 days from now is the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, which is Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And it was on that particular day when the Jewish high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary. He would go into that holy place where God's presence dwelled, and there he would offer a yearly sacrifice. And that sacrifice would atone for the sins of Israel for a year. But even after the Day of Atonement, there were more daily sacrifices that need to be offered repeatedly because the Day of Atonement, though it was significant and a, a big day for the whole year, there were also daily sacrifices that were required. We read in verse 3 that the priest needed to have something to offer for these sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. But verse 4 makes the simple point that if Jesus were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. What's really interesting and important to understand is that that was written in the present tense, meaning that when Hebrews was first written, it was written at a time when there was still a temple in Jerusalem, right? This is before 70 AD. You know what happened in 70 AD? That was when the second temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And when that temple was destroyed, Israel ceased to offer sacrifices because there was no more temple to offer sacrifices in. And so until there is a rebuilding of a temple in Jerusalem, there is no daily or yearly animal sacrifices being made. And yet Jewish people are still holding to these holy days such as Yom Kippur. And this is very interesting and could take us on a real good rabbit trail. But to go there, you'll just have to come to Israel in April. So <laughs> verse 5 says, They, that is the Levitical priests, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tents... He was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. All right, so there was a time when God received gifts and offerings from the Levitical priests, and he gave instructions on how that was to be done. He called Moses, his servant, up to Mount Sinai, and he said, Moses, I want you to make a tent a meeting place where my people can meet with me, and, and I have specific instructions for how I want this tent to be built. It will be according to the pattern that is in heaven. So basically, what God said is, I want to make a replica of my heavenly throne. And the tabernacle is going to have very specific measurements. It's going to have very specific furnishings. There's going to be very specific instructions for how it's to be built and then how it's to be used. And so it was made in that way. They followed these instructions for how God said to build the tent of meeting. And it was built according to the pattern that Moses saw when he was given revelation by God on Mount Sinai. Now, one side note is you can go and read in Exodus chapter 25 to 31 the instructions that are given for the building and the furnishing of the tabernacle. And I'm just going to tell you one thing that you will not find mentioned there. You will not find a chair. 
Why? Well, you won't find a chair because the work of the Levitical priests was never finished. You know, I used to work in restaurants and my manager used to say, if there's time to lean, there's time to clean. <laughs> right? The work was never finished. So later on in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, it will say this. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. The Levitical priests stood daily, no sitting, only working, because the work of atonement was never finished. Sacrifices were continually made because sin continually remained. That is, until Jesus, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, offered himself up as a perfect sacrifice. In his sacrifice of blood, has taken away our sins once and for all. You remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Didn't say covers the sins of the world. Doesn't give us, buys us a year, gives us a decade, takes away the sins of the world once and for all. And that's why Jesus has sat down in the true tent, the one the Lord set up, not the one Moses set up, because the work of Jesus is finished. See, the working of the law has no end because the law cannot perfect us. That is why you will be absolutely exhausted if you try to live for God according to the works of the law, you're going to be miserably exhausted. And this is why you can be at rest if you receive the finished work of Jesus. Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you heavy burdened? Do you feel that with God it's always work, 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 work? When Jesus says, come to me, I will give you rest. Have you come to Jesus in this way? See, this is all leading us to even stronger conclusions about Jesus and about his eternal priesthood. Verse 6 and 7 says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. This chapter is like a crescendo in the book of Hebrews because in the coming weeks, we're just going to hear more and more about the excellent ministry of Jesus that comes from this ministry that Jesus has obtained that is much more excellent than the old. And so there it is again. We see these words, Jesus is better Jesus is greater. Jesus is superior. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. So let me try to illustrate it in this way. You know, we live in a culture where we are always looking for the newest and the best version of something. You know, one of the ways people can get us is they'll say new and improved. 
oh, really? Right? And Apple just came out with the new iPhone last week. Kind of looks the same to me, but I'm sure the insides are different. So, but anyways, not hating on Apple. I, I use Apple, but you know, many people now feel that they need to ditch their last model and get an upgrade. And, you know, there's something to be said about, you know, upgrading of getting something better if there really is something better. So imagine you still had one of those, you know, old Nokia phones or, or you're still rocking the Blackberry phone, you know, or you got a pager on your belt, you know, four one one. I got to call my wife, you know, imagine that that's what you were still rocking. And someone comes and gives you one of these new and better smartphones, you know, I hope you would realize that there is something new, something better for you to have. Now, look, new phones are always going to come up short of the point because, you know, you're like, I don't want one of those things, you know. But you get the point right, is that the new has come and the new is better than the old. Therefore, leave the old and take the new. And this is what the Hebrews needed to hear. They needed to hear not something petty about phones, right? What they were dealing with was matters of eternal life with God. See, the truths presented here are matters of salvation. It's not just like, oh, that sounds like this religion sounds a little bit better than the next one. No, what this is saying is there's a new and there is a covenant and it's a ministry that Jesus has obtained and and this is it, you guys, this is it. And at the end of the chapter, it's going to say that the old is obsolete. And we know that when something goes obsolete, it means there's something so much newer, something so much better that has come along that there's no longer a place for the old. It doesn't even function anymore. And so here's where this is going and this is where there's no question for debate about how Jesus is better and his ministry is better, is that the new covenant is better than the old covenants, hands down. The grace of Jesus is better than the law of Moses. The promises of Jesus are better than the promise of blessing and cursing in the law. The blood of Jesus is better than the blood of bulls and goats. The heavenly reality is better than the earthly copies and shadows. You know, the tabernacle or even the temple was just a shadow of the reality that is in heaven. Could you imagine if you, you know, went up to somebody, someone great, and you were still talking to their shadow? Like, who talks to a shadow, right? Shadow is just a casting of the reality, and Jesus is the reality, and he has come, and he is alive in heaven. And so there's an excellent ministry of Jesus, and that's a ministry that's going to be continually declared from this pulpit week after week, this covenant of grace that's in Jesus Christ. All right, here's what we're going to do. You're looking at the chapter and you're thinking, Daniel said we're covering this whole chapter and I only see that we're about halfway through and it's about time to wrap this up. Okay, we're going to go through this. 
this prophecy that is given through Jeremiah, and we're going to be looking at some of the ways that the new covenant is much better than the old covenant. But don't worry, this is going to be unfolded in the coming weeks as we continue studying the book of Hebrews. But let's just look at a few things. Verse 8 starts by saying, he finds fault with them when he says. So he found fault with the old, and that's why there needed to be a new And verse 8 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So this was a prophecy that was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah to Israel and Judah. This was during the time when the nation was divided. And God said, I'm going to do something new, and it's, it's coming. I will establish a new covenant. And God wanted to be clear, it's new. It's not going to be like the old. It's different. Verse 9 says, Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Go read Exodus to figure out what he's talking about there. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Go read the whole Old Testament to know what that's talking about. See, God made a covenant with Israel, with the fathers of Israel, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even with Moses. There's even the Davidic covenant. You can go through and look at all the covenants that God made with his people, the Jewish people. But what you're going to see again and again and again is man's failure to uphold their end of the covenants. And so the old covenant was, covenant just means to cut, You know, they cut a deal where God says, I'm going to do this, and you do this. And this old covenant was based upon um, really blessings and curses. God said, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Now go on ahead. (laughs) How did that go? Not very great. Just go read the Old Testament. You see, God knew that sin would continually remain And that because sin continually interferes with the holiness of God, God knew that he could not go on forever like that because sin cannot go on eternally. In heaven, there will be no sin. And so there would come a time where sin would need to be judged finally and decisively. And so he says this in verse 10, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Notice how many times God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. It doesn't say, you do, you do, you do. It's just, God says, I'm going to do this. Because one of the features of the new covenant is, it's one-sided. God does it all. He accomplishes it all. It's not on your part. We simply receive what God has said he will do by grace through faith. And so this is what he says. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You know, the old covenant was written on tablets, tablets of stone, later upon scrolls. God has now written his law into our minds and into our hearts. As Paul says in Corinthians, we are living epistles and the spirit of God is the scribe. God says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
It reminds me of these words in Revelation 21, verse 2 and 3, which is going to be really the fulfillment of all of this in heaven. It says, as I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Doesn't that sound so nice? See, but we already have that. We have the down payment of that. We have the guarantee of that, because what God has done with the new covenant is he says, I will put my spirit in them. No longer in fear do you approach this holy sanctuary and tabernacle that could only be entered once a year. But instead, we have been made God's temple. Do you know that you are the temple of the living God? That when Christ became your Lord and Savior, God put his spirit in you and he dwells in you and with you. You see, this is probably the most amazing part of the new covenants. No longer are we looking outside of how to live for God. Now, by faith, we just commune with the spirit of God that is within us and say, oh, Lord, how do I live for you? Oh, God, how do I serve you? Holy Spirit, lead me in obedience to Jesus. Lord God, you have... Come in me to make me your child. And the Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. Where you can go to God and just say, Abba, Father. And so this new covenant ministry is amazing. God says, I'm going to put my law in your minds. I'm going to write my truths on your heart. I will be your God. You will be my child. Trust in Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant, and receive this all by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 11 says, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the greatest of them, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Now, this verse humbles me because it's now... 10.05, when I really should be wrapping up. And in my teaching today, this is what I've really just tried to get across to every single one of you. Some of you I know quite well. Some of you I've never even met before. But this is what I've been trying to get across all morning. That you would know Jesus. And that you would be known by Jesus. That you would have this living, authentic relationship with the God who created you with the God who came to this earth to be a sacrifice for your sins when he died on the cross and when he rose from the dead. Week after week, I preach from this pulpit so that you can know Jesus and be known by Jesus. But it humbles me because it says there, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. You know, you have no need that anyone should teach you. Because you have the anointing, don't you? 
The anointing is the spirit of God that dwells in you that teaches you all truth and leads you to Jesus. So I'm simply coming alongside what the spirit is already, or let me get that right. The spirit is coming alongside me to say what he's already said to you. And this is one of the blessings of the new covenant. And then verse 12, I just don't know what to do with this verse except just to read it and be humbled by it. Verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. All right, guys, I laid in bed last night, tossing and turning, because, God, what is this covenant that you have made? And do I really get it? Am I really preaching this to your people? Because here's the thing, you guys. Um, when it says, I will remember their sins no more, I'm really good at remembering my sin. And I'm really good at remembering other people's sins. And I have a God who remembers my sin no more. He's cast it as far as the east is from the west. Like the morning mist that's here and then gone, it vanishes from him where he does not remember my sin. That is mind-blowing for an all-knowing God that he chooses not to remember my sin and how often I keep a record of wrong for myself and for others. This is a grace. This is a mercy that should make us undone. Because I tell you, brothers and sisters, I know it for myself, and I can probably imagine it's sometimes the case for you. I still operate on old covenant terms. This is sometimes how I operate with God, is I think, God, if I obey you, you're going to bless me. And God, if I disobey you, you're going to curse me. Or, or, or with other people, I, I sometimes default to this. If you treat me well, <laughs> I will bless you. If you cross me, I will curse you. <laughs> and I, I, I deal with old covenant terms for myself and for others and yet I serve a God. I have such a high priest in heaven who entered the inner sanctuary and offered up himself, his own blood, atoning for sins once and for all. And if sin has been atoned once and for all, then that means God does not remember sin anymore. Because when he looks at you, he sees you covered by the blood of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And so when we're coming to God, and when we're thinking that God the Father's acceptance of me is because of my performance, we've got it all wrong. God the Father's acceptance of me is because I have trusted in the shed blood of Jesus as the only way for my sins to be forgiven, removed and forgotten 
It is only through Jesus, by his new covenant ministry, that God can save me and he can save you. It is the only way, and it has been opened up, and it's ready for you to walk in. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Draw us near to this throne that you speak of in your word, that we may obtain grace, that we may obtain grace and mercy and help in our time of need. Oh, Jesus, how we need you. Would you draw us into yourself, I pray. Amen. Amen.